Welcome back, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. We're back for another interesting conversation with an accomplished Georgia music teacher today that I'm really looking forward to. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to encourage all of you to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues who might be interested. And if you can take the time to leave a review, I would really appreciate that. So now, without further delay, let's get to today's conversation. We are joined by Sonia Foster. Hello, Sonia. Hello, baby. It's a delight to be here today. It's wonderful to be able to speak with you. Let's get started. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. Yes, I have a private studio for very gifted pre-college violinists, which I established 30 years ago. Uh, Upon moving from Chicago to Atlanta, and I had been employed by two different colleges. I was on the faculty, a music faculty of Wheaton College, Trinity College, Deerfield, Illinois, um, and then head of strings later at Wheaton College. After moving to Atlanta, I decided that the very gifted pre-college level of students needed the most amount of help as they needed to learn all the fundamentals of great violin playing, and it was rarely being taught. My own violin teacher later, and I'll go into how I got to him, but Ivan Galamian, I discovered later after I made the decision, that was his love pre-college. Itzhak Perlman and all the great, Pinker Zuckerman, all the famous, Kyung Wah Chung, all the famous violinists came to him as a pre-college student. It's a lot like sports, young Olympic athletes need to learn all the fundamentals of their area before a certain age. Gymnasts, ice skaters, they can't start at 18, so they can't learn the difficult techniques. I got to this point of making this decision by being one of those children when I was nine. I started piano at the age of five with an excellent teacher in Wheaton, Illinois. Loved it, did well, and then on my own, I was shown a violin and I told my parents I'd like to learn how to play that too. Well, the progress in music, my parents were great lovers of music and mother would sing constantly around the house. My father was very artistic in the art sense, but they loved music. So I started the violin. Well, the progress was so rapid, but it was just a regular, you know, unaccomplished teacher that the manager of Chicago Symphony, who was a neighbor, brought me downtown at the age of nine to the best violin teacher in Chicago. He didn't take children, but he took me and he was very demanding. He would not take me unless I practiced three to four hours a day, more like four than three. (laughs) And... He was very strict. He didn't want me ice skating, which I did anyway, but uh, he, he was mainly a teacher for college students. But I went to him, and now we lived in Chicago. In those days, we lived 22 miles west, and it was countryside, so had no neighbors, had no friends. I mean, I went to school, and you saw your friends at school. So practicing was not a problem. It didn't bother me. I mean, my parents did not force me to practice. My teacher forced me to. <laughs> he would be. He would not accept it. If I hadn't done the required amount, he would have eventually you know, quit 
like me. So, and I enjoyed it. I mean, I made fast progress. I entered competitions. I won competitions. My parents did everything to help me, including driving 44 miles round trip every week. So I kept with it. My brother, um, my brother, who ended up being a very famous, a world famous concert cellist, Lawrence Foster, he started the cello at age seven at the same place. It was uh, Chicago Musical College on, on the lakefront, uh, part of Roosevelt University uh, in Chicago on North Michigan Avenue. When I was 14, we as a family were invited to meet and play for Ivan Galamia, this teacher I've mentioned. Greatest, is considered the greatest violin teacher of the 20th century. And we, we drove to the Adirondack Mountains in New York where he had his famous Meadowmount camp. We played for him. And uh, it was an awesome experience because just as a person, he is... He was six feet four, very stern of Armenian background. Of course, by then he was quite an older man and he had taught so many you know, famous people and he was very quiet, didn't say much. After playing, he invited, just on the spot, invited me and my brother to come to Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. Now, everyone that knows Curtis knows that is very rare. The audition process on a normal basis is these in contemporary times, it's very difficult. You have to know a tremendous amount of repertoire. And back then, as well as now, they only accept one or two violinists or one or two cellists per year. My parents accepted. You know, we did go home, think about it, and they accepted. And we moved to Philadelphia. And it was a magnificent experience. Curtis Institute sits like this as a grand mansion in the heart of Philadelphia on Rittenhouse Square. It still is there today. It was underwritten and endowed by the Curtis Publishing Company. Every Wednesday afternoon, there was high tea. There still is. Ephraim Zimbalist, famous violinist of the time, was the president back in those days. And it's gone on you know, nowadays, um, it's a magnificent school. One of my students did get accepted at Curtis Joel Link. So we moved to Philadelphia and then in college and I was performing all that time. And uh, my brother, my parents decided Lawrence would do better at uh, the Juilliard School on the, on the Saturday pre-college program. So she traveled every Saturday to New York on the train and he was in the pre-college program there. Um, when I became a ready for college, I decided to switch to Juilliard with Mr. Galami's approval. He taught at both schools. And because no actual degree is available at Curtis, you have to go over to University of Pennsylvania or another college to get the degree. You can get a diploma, but I wanted a degree. So I switched over, over to Juilliard. And through all this time, I was performing. Now I'm saying all this is because my track in the music world is a lot different than many people. Basically, you know, my life was always practicing. Mm -hmm. I didn't have, I mean, but I ended up perfectly happy. You know, I made friends at Curtis. I made friends, you know, where I went to, when I did go to school. Um, I didn't feel I was denied in any way. 
it's different in these in these times. So I have I've had a little different track in terms of becoming the teacher I am. After our graduation, went back to Chicago, joined the faculty of two colleges, and I had a few private students. One of one family was the Ying family, who became the Ying String Quartet. They are in residence at Eastman School of Music, and they've won a Grammy. They are very famous. So I had three of the Ying children, including Philip Ying, who is one of the directors of the Bowdoin International Music Festival. <laughs> so they were with me several years, and, uh, and they're a phenomenal family, wonderful family. Then I moved to Georgia, not by my choice. My uh, first husband got a job in Georgia. We moved to Georgia, and the Atlanta Music Club heard about it, and they sponsored me in a debut recital at the Woodruff Arts Center. And uh, it, it was really, you know, it was extremely exciting. And out of that, I even that day, I started getting a lot of requests to teach. So I started up my studio there in Atlanta. This grew by leaps and bounds. And over the years there, um, I've had many students go on to big careers. For instance, Joel Link. He's the first violin of the Dover String Quartet, which is internationally known. They won the uh, the Banff International String Quartet competition. He went to Curtis. He also by himself won first place in the Menuhin uh, competition, which is worldwide. He was in London for that, and that was in a junior division. But I taught Joel Link as a child. And I taught his brother and sister also. They are violists. One brother is a violist and his sister is a violinist. Another student that's gone on to a big career is Kristen Lee. She's a concert violinist. She was, uh, she was eight years old, and I think Joel was also eight, eight or nine when he came to me. Kristen, uh, her name was Insu Lee, and she, they, she switched her name coming to America. Her father was um, in residence at Auburn University for a year, and they drove up to Atlanta. And she worked several years for me until I suggested that she definitely they should move to New York because her father was only allowed one year in the U.S. He had his Ph.D., um, I can't remember if he was chemical engineering, some sort of engineering. He had to go back to Korea. So I felt that the mother and the two daughters should go up to New York. And I called Dorothy DeLay. Dorothy DeLay accepted her. And then later, Itzhak Perlman accepted her as a student. So it's very, it's just interesting. And then I have another young woman, Rachel Harding. She's in Detroit Symphony. Daisuke Yamamoto's concertmaster of the Richmond, Virginia Symphony. And others have gone on to be violin teachers, professional violinists in orchestras or chamber music groups. They become doctors, attorneys, inventors, directors of music festival, director of Salzburg Music Festival uh, is one, and, and just so many interesting professions. It's, it's been a, a wonderful experience. I will just interject this here. At a point I had to, I was told by doctors I had to stop performing. I was expecting a baby and everything went wrong in my body and I had to go, I had to be in the hospital 49 days. I almost didn't make it. I made it, but I developed a blood clotting disorder. So I'm just saying that because people are wondering, why aren't you performing now? Well, I was told by the top doctor in my, uh, the field of my problem at the National Institutes of Health to stop playing. And, you know, at the time, um, I can't say it bothered me a lot because the the, the choices were, were pretty obvious. I mean, I had 
it would not go well for me if I continued performing. But what I love is that I'm able and have been able to impart my performing experience, and I still do today. It seems like by all accounts, you were what many would call a child prodigy. And it seems like you've taught many children who are very gifted, talented, and perhaps themselves child prodigies. I think one of the first follow-up questions that comes to mind is, is there ever a risk of burnout when uh, a child is so prodigious at a young age? I have never had burnout. My my brother, I don't call myself a child prodigy. My my brother definitely was a child prodigy. Leonard Bernstein, he per, he was chosen by Bernstein to be on the Young People's Concerts, uh, and and he, Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein announced Lawrence as an authentic genius uh, in that Young People's Concert. He never had burnout. I never experienced burnout, and my students have not and that that I know of I mean especially those that are really practicing a lot and one reason may be because I really stress having a wholesome life and being well-rounded and having fun now the first teacher I went to in Chicago who was very stern I would have had burnout he did not like fun he did not want he wasn't used to teaching children so he was very hard on his college level students i think i definitely would have had burnout and maybe even quit the violin i hate to say that but this is true mr galamian was very serious and there was nothing you know there was not talking or much chatter at a lesson it was so automatic i mean he did not insist i practice a certain amount of hours but you had to <laughs> You wouldn't not. He was very awesome. I mean, just in his look. And I loved him. Some people, you know, they'll write in their biographies they didn't like him. I adored him. He was quiet and he was kind to me. And some people look for a teacher to be their father. Mm -hmm. I've noticed that in a few other people who say they really could not stand the years with him. I had the most phenomenal parents. I had the most wonderful father. I didn't need Mr. Galami to be a father. And we got along wonderfully, just absolutely wonderfully. But he could be stern. I've heard him throwing books at other students that didn't practice or would come in and sight read. He would give like five Kreitzer etudes a week and they'd come in and sight read. He hated that. They didn't, well, they didn't respect him. One of the things that you were recently recognized with is the Teacher of the Year Award with Georgia Music Teachers Association. And um, as part of that, you provided a list of advice, teaching advice. So I was wondering if we can talk about your teaching. How do you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy? Oh, yes, I love talking about that very much. And this is probably a little more uh, comprehensive than the teaching tips. I believe that being an excellent teacher, you should build every aspect of a blossoming young musician. I encourage mastery in every area while building that student up as a person. I believe an excellent teacher has to have extraordinary analytical skill to constantly and consistently evaluate every aspect of a student's playing every lesson, all the time. I believe an excellent teacher must have the power and knowledge to present solution 
for all the problems that may occur at every lesson. Students are unique. Stu solutions for one person may never work for another person. So you have to be, they, ha they have to be, this follows to the next one, an excellent teacher needs to be able to see deeply and understand each individual student and know who is sensitive or who is not. They, some can be thick-skinned. So you have to be able to adjust your teaching to the individual student. It's, it's important to teach differently for varying stages of development too, ages, uh, personalities. For myself, and this was in the teaching tips, I believe in teaching only those who want to study with me. I do not want to teach anyone who doesn't want to study with me, and it could that's be evident at an audition. I do audition, and that's mentioned in the teaching tips, I audition everybody that I take. I don't want students to study with me if they don't want to. Um, and, and that's really important. They can, they can display that in an audition. They can seem disinterested or many teachers, and even now going through this time with the uh, pandemic, many teachers take students just because they need an income. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. You will not get results with students who don't want to study with you. Secondly, I, I believe each lesson should be an exciting learning experience. And one thing that, that many students tell me, and, and this is in no way bragging, but they find their lesson is the most exciting time of their week. And I love hearing that. I want it to be. So I don't know if I ever felt quite that way in studying, but I want my students students to feel that way. I believe first impressions, when I first meet that student at an audition, and I do, I do go through a vetting process by phone and by listening to recordings before I bring someone to an actual audition. Otherwise, uh, there is a danger in bringing someone to an audition who you have not vetted. If you do not accept them, they can go through a terrible crash. Most of them will go through a terrible, at least for people that I would want to study, and they would go through a terrible crash. So I vet and see if they're the kind of people who would put in the required practice. I require a minimum of two hours a day. Most of my, any age, and I've, start, I've started as, as low as seven, uh, most of my students, the youngest are about 12 right now, but they have to do at least two hours a day. And a lot of them just want to do three and four hours or as many as they can. I do also believe that teachers should be in top shape on their own instrument. They should practice regularly and be able to demonstrate. I, that's one thing I think some teachers, they can't demonstrate. I mean, I teach a wide range. I mean, I'm teaching the Corn Gold Concerto right now and Brooke and Lalo. And I mean, I teach a wide range every week and I can play everything. And what I demand of myself is I better be able to play it better than them, <laughs> not worse. I do believe a lesson should be a safe place and safe environment, free of generalized sweeping criticism. And it should be a place of confidentiality so they know you're not talking to all the other students about them. Uh, it needs to be a place where praise, this is really important, praise is used honestly and wisely. Why? And I tell my students, I'm going to compliment you. 
not to make you feel good. I will never use praise to make you feel good. I will use praise so you'll know that you practice correctly. If I'm, I, if they don't get praise and they get criticism, I give them the answer to what needs to be fixed, how to fix it. But if I praise them, students can be really hard on themselves. Sometimes they don't like it. They're uncomfortable if I praise them. I said, no, I want you to know you practice it right. I want you to practice it that way again. You did well. I think that's one thing was missed in all the study, except one teacher, Mr. Galamian had associates um, that every, every student that studied with him had one of his assistants, I should say. Dorothy DeLay was an assistant. He had numerous assistants. I had, he assigned to me Paul Makinovitsky, who's no longer alive, but he was a concert violinist. And he used praise. When he would praise me, I knew he meant it. He was concertizing solo and even with Chicago Symphony when I was studying with him and Galamian. You saw Galamian every, Mr. Galamian every other week. Then you saw his assistant every other week. He would praise. So I think praise is really, really very important and criticisms have to be given with care. I never believe in tearing a student down, either as a person, as it's just, some teachers will joke, you know, make a joke at how they look or, or something. I do not believe in jokes. I don't believe in tearing a person down as a musician. Oh, you sound terrible today. I mean, I know students study in major conservatories and one week the teacher thought they were, and this is a true story from one of my students. I won't mention the conservatory, one Juilliard, but the teacher one week thought she was terrible, another week thought she was the greatest talent in the world. That is not good for learning. Uh, and I also believe in hearing everything I assign and assign only what I can hear because of muscle memory. I do not want them practicing wrong. So I'm a very acutely aware of time and I hear everything I assign without going over a half hour. Do most of your lessons take place within a half hour or do you have longer lessons? With One students? hour. One hour. And, and once in a while, it could be an hour and a half. There's a few students who want an hour and a half. I see. You talked earlier about practicing yourself so that you're ready to play your students' pieces and uh, being able to play at an even higher level than they, they do. It's interesting because I think a lot of times, especially in the world of higher ed, we can fall into this thinking where if a student is not good enough to be a performance major, then they go into music education, then they become a teacher. You know, how, how do we work out the practicalities of needing teachers, but perhaps the most gifted are gravitating towards performance and not gravitating towards teaching. Well, that's very important. I have had a few where their parents uh, that perform, people should have been performance majors, became music education majors, majors because their parents says, I want you to be able to earn money when you finish. And it's very important. Well, one of my things is, and I was going to mention it later, if someone wants to definitely go into music, I insist they learn how to do everything. That It's not possible. I will, And I refuse to tell anybody they can have a performing career, not even the greatest talents, because it's very... Uh, it's, it's not a sure thing. I mean, there's, there's so many competing for that, and there's political things involved. And just because you, if you want every competition doesn't mean you're going to have a career. So I say you have to learn how to do everything. If you want a career in music, you have got to learn to teach. 
You've got to learn to perform. You've got to learn to play in orchestras and be in chamber music. Some of my students will take teaching courses, not go into uh, not go into music education, but they will go into they will start teaching early while they're in college. I think it's critical, very very important. Perhaps um, we've already started dipping our toes into this next question, but what are your goals for your students and for yourself? My goals for my students is this is number one, that they reach their potential as a human being and as an, a musician, but being a, a wonderful human being is at the top. There are some musicians that just aren't great human beings, and that is, to me, very tragic. I want my students to be emotionally, mentally, psychologically whole. I encourage them to have fun. I encourage them to, for instance, they can't, I tell them not to practice Thanksgiving and Christmas. You won't believe how many, you know, their parents would like them to. No, I want them to have fun. I want them to do other things. There is a danger in our generation of students taking on too much. I leave it within, the, fortunately, I have wonderful parents of students and they, they can work it out together. They know my requirements. I will tell them if they're not doing well, but I want them not to overdo, but I want them to be healthy physically and healthy emotionally and psychologically. That has been a big thing, like what well, you mentioned back at Child Prodigies. There have been some that they were pressed so hard that they quit or they just they got mentally ill, which is very tragic. I don't believe in that at all. I, it's more important to be healthy and whole and to be a wonderful human being. What advice do you have for parents who have children taking lessons? How can they encourage and help them to succeed? What role do parents play in a child's musical development? Well, parents play an enormous role. If a parent is not interested in having their student, their child study, their child will not become a good musician. You need to have wise and caring and sensitive parents. The first thing they need to do, and some of them just know how to do this automatically, is choose a good teacher. Sometimes just anybody, you know, they'll look in a phone book or they'll just, you know, hear somebody studying with someone and they will not choose a good teacher. And there's men, there are some teachers around, probably not in GMTA, but there are teachers around that really only had a few piano lessons or don't have a degree or don't want to teach. They're just teaching for money. That can be a very bad, that can be a very bad thing. So I want parents to care for parents of any instrument, ch carefully choose a good teacher, study their bio. Where do they go to school? How many years have they taught? What are, what are they doing with their instrument? Find out about their background and their successes with other young people. A lot of the parents found me because my students would win competitions and then they would call me. Talk to the parents of children, talk to the parents of the children they are teaching and insist on an addition. Do not go, do not choose a teacher and just automatically get involved. See if that teacher relates well to the child. See if you can take a month of trial lessons. I say that to my parents when I do take them. My studio is very limited. Sometimes I get calls, one call a week, and I'm just 
keep I'm keeping my studio very limited right now, extremely limited. I think parents should always go to the lessons, especially the younger children. If parent, I'd say it's a big warning sign if the teacher does not want you at the lesson. There's there's something not right. I think even as a teenager, I mean, now definitely there are some te teachers who don't want the parents talking or commenting to their child during the lesson. That's the teacher's job to not let that happen. If it has happened, which is very rare, maybe once or twice at all the years I've taught, I would just ask the parent not to say anything. I used to be in a bigger house and they would sit in the front hall. Now they sit in the room, but uh, it doesn't happen. My, my parents, the students' parents don't speak. I think another thing for a parent to watch for in a teacher is the environment of the lessons clean, is it quiet? Is it focused? Does the teacher answer telephone calls or texts or eat during the lessons? I've heard of college teachers doing that. And it's important that your child has a place to practice at home that's quiet, it's clean, and they have a light on their music stand. <laughs> I think it's important that the parents do not have terrible criticisms of their, their own children. Don't use sweeping generalizations. You need to be positive. The parents need to be positive, encouraging, interested. Go to the recitals. They need to be patient. And if the child is not practicing, report it to the teacher. In your biography on the Georgia Music Teachers Association website, you thanked your parents for their support of your musical growth. I wonder how did they encourage and nurture your love of music? Well, it started when I was three years old. I mean, my mother would be singing all day. And one day she said, I came up to her and said, Mommy, I know that song. And, and I sang it perfectly. They gave me lessons with the best teachers from the start. They bought me a wonderful violin. I had a three-quarter Amati to learn on, which is, Amati was a teacher's strat. They had no idea what they were doing. But the violin, the early violin teacher who was, you know, not, not a highly reputable teacher. I mean, he wasn't disreputable. I mean, he just was average teacher. Just thought they should buy this violin. And when I came to a full size, I got a good full size because we traded in an Amati. It was made for a princess. There's only two in the world. I wish I knew where it was today. It was wonderful. They did everything. They sacrificed. Mother drove 44 miles a week. And actually, my violin teacher started giving me extra lessons. So sometimes it would be two and three times a week from Wheaton area down to downtown Chicago. So until they died, they've they've come to all like all my student recitals. They brought us to New York, brought me to Philadelphia, brought me to the teachers to play for them. They've just, they did everything right and everything possible and were extremely supportive. They were not harsh or mean or, like I said, they brought me to teachers who took care of the practice part. <laughs> That's really lovely to hear and really moving to, to realize you had that support. Do you have any books about music or teaching that you can recommend? Oh, I do. I love books. And someday I will write. The reason I don't write is because my best writing is in the morning and my best practicing is in the morning. So I'm not giving up my practicing. <laughs> At every age, you have to keep it up. Your, your technique, you have to keep it up. Scales every day. They said hyphens practice. 
practice an hour a day of scales until he died in his 80s. I mean, I don't do that much. Um, and I can't do a lot of practicing, but uh, yes, like, but books, I love books. Okay, the first book, it's just revolutionary. It's called The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. And on the front of the book is Greatness Isn't Born. It's grown. Here's how. I've read through this several times. He studied and researched small hotbeds of great talent in many fields, sports, singing. He, he did um, study my teacher, Ivan Galamian, at the Metamount School of Music. But he studied many sports. He would find these. They would grow up out of nowhere. These hotbeds of talents. Why? What made them hotbeds of talent? And he talks about deep practicing. What, it doesn't matter what, what field you're in. Deep practicing. How to practice. And when you deeply practice in a certain way, you create myelin in the brain. This is just, you create a literal substance in your brain. And I believe from what I learned from Ivan Galamian, now having been with Galamian, I took some of the, my first teacher, Morris Gomberg had been with the, the Russian school and I used a little bit, but I used mainly like Ivan Galamian had a series of A2 books and a, he developed his own scale book. And I take, I went through it, even though I was a performer, I was a solo performer when I came to him, but he took through all this, this whole, you know, from, from Kreitzer all the way through Paganini. And he had a way of doing it. And I've taken all my students and built all their technique. I, I, I said, it's very much like growing, growing orchids. I've taken them from seven years old until they got into Juilliard. I had a 10 year old from Atlanta who came to me at 10 as somewhat of a beginner. And at 18, he got into Juilliard. It has to do with this myelin in the brain. So Ivan Galamian had it. He, he, he actually researched him. I was able to take what he did and duplicate it. So when you get that myelin in the brain, you get really, really smart. I've had students, aside from music, get perfect scores in SAT. I have students who don't want to do violin as a major. They're in Yale and Princeton. And one of my boys, is um, he invented things uh, he was triple major Georgia Tech while still practicing, and and he and had an invention. Warren Buffett was interested, met with him. He sold his invention. He's now an executive with Google, and he's like early 30s. So this book, it is phenomenal, The Talent Code. I even encourage my parents to read it because it does talk about practicing. It's just so informative. It also says, you know, people that develop a lot of myelin in their brain never get um, Alzheimer's. <laughs> That's really interesting. Another set of books, uh, Juilliard had a sports psychologist some years ago named Don Green, G-R-E-E-N-E. -E -E, and he has is a peak performance psychologist. I love his books, Fight Your Fear and Win. That can be for any area. He has a book on audition success and performance success. And I was already using these, being a performer and a trained performer, I had already used these techniques and he simply put them down. I didn't know him, but he put down the ideas of practice performing, for instance. 
all my students, like, okay, if they're trying for college audition, we prepare their repertoire a year in advance. In Russia, they do it three years in advance. I prepare them a year in advance. They know their repertoire. They memorize it, put it away, bring it back. Uh, and ha they have to, everybody's got to practice performing. Now, that means playing for their family as though they don't know them, playing for their friends, running through it, recording it, listening to it, studying it. In the day of COVID, we're still doing that. I used to have a lot of recitals every year. That stopped. That came to a complete halt. Um, so what I did was I have them go to the pianist, my, my studio pianist, Sharon Berenson, who, who is a member of um, Atlanta Symphony, on the violin. She's a violinist and pianist and keyboarder with Atlanta Symphony, but been a violinist there many, many years, longtime violinist. And I would have them rehearse with the piano, then record it. So all the repertoire they learned during COVID, they recorded it. And, and all of them felt this very helpful. And so now this year they're doing, there was a few competitions last year they did, and, and they are doing competitions. That helps to take the place of uh, performances. And if they can play in their church now or whatever, I, I, I really encourage that. Another book I absolutely, there's two more books I really love. One is um, more about being a general artist, Julia Cameron, C-A-M-E-R-O-N, Julia Cameron, The Artist's Way. It's one of her first books. It is great for teachers. One of her mottos in that book is take care of your artist. Take care of you. You are the artist. You are you know, passing this on to your children. Take care of your artist. Walk, exercise, stay healthy. And you had asked, and I didn't really answer, what are my goals for myself? Keep up my violin playing and always be growing. I'm always reading and going to concerts, but taking care of my artist. I just love that. That is one of my favorite mottos. Another book I have just started is called The Inner Voice by Renee Fleming, the greatest American soprano. I just heard her recently and I saw she had a, a book and I've just started, I've not read through the whole book. But what she went through to become the artist she is, is amazing to me. It's just completely, she had to go through, I think more maybe than a violinist but she is the warmest. I don't know her, I have not met her, but what she conveys on stage is the warmth and then complete artistry, just such complete artistry. So I would recommend The Inner Voice by Renee Fleming. I'm star she has a series on YouTube. I have not started but a few minutes to listen to it, but it's called Music in the Mind. So that might be something to look into. It's four or five or six, uh, one hour videos of her talking to different people about music and the mind. So th that is what, those are what I highly en encourage other teachers. Teachers need resources. Great. Thank you so much for those recommendations. Tell me about your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you? I absolutely love GMTA. My GMTA provides such wonderful resources for young musicians. All the instruments, and I believe voice also. First of all, they have spring auditions. 
and they have it, they have it from kindergarten through upper college just giving for the whole state of Georgia and that gives so many an opportunity to prepare several pieces and then get critiqued and then get ranked and then out of each they do kindergarten I believe they do kindergarten first grade second and third and so far as you go up they choose a conference recitalist and have a marvelous recitalist recital of those who win that first place every year at their conference. That is a magnificent opportunity. And then students get to read, you know, what the judge thought about them. And I know they have varying resources for teachers and conferences. They have a conference, but forums. I know MTNA. Now, MTNA is the larger Music Teachers National Association, the larger group uh, over all the states. And MTNA has a once-a-year magnificent competition. Each state participates and participate for all the variety of, of uh, instruments. In the in the they have junior string, senior string, college and young artist string. Um, they the junior string they perform four pieces or 20 minutes. I usually have four pieces and seniors 30 minutes. If the student wins the state, then they compete against their uh, their division for for the south it's southern division and there's eight states they compete with young people it used to be live they decided uh, before covid to make it virtual or not virtual because at least in the south and probably in the north there was uh, many of my students would win the state and go to the go to the uh Southern Division and the roads would be solid ice. They would always be in January and the roads would be solid ice. So making a recording was common in the last few years uh, before COVID. Uh, and then the ones that win the, their division get to go to the, to the finals, to the convention. It's a magnificent opportunity. And I've had several, I've had Joel Link won first in the United States uh, coming from Georgia. And his brother, Alexander Link, as a violist, he actually won the year before Joel. He won first in the United States of the MTNA Junior Division. So they won the state, they won the, the Southern Division, then they won first. And I've had several others that have come in second and third place in the national competition. And I've had quite a few just make it to the national finals. So MTNA offers forums and just a, a whole lot of information and resources. And I think anybody teaching, everybody teaching needs to be a member of their state and uh, well, you join MTNA, but then you also join your state. So you pay, you know, for both. It is worth it. Absolutely worth it. And of course, I've met many wonderful people. One thing I can say about uh, GMTA, they're so well organized. I think it's fantastic. It's so well organized. And I mean, there's so many students are dealing with from different parts of, of the state. I just praise, I know you're involved, praise them for all their excellent organization. Well, thank you for that encouragement and thank you for your participation. Do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and enter professional life? Yes, as part of what I said earlier, I think they need to learn how to do everything except jobs, learning to do orchestra, learning to do chamber music, learning to teach, and solo. One thing I really believe in 
especially if you, well, for any of, the, any of those areas, it's never about luck. The key is never luck. It's being prepared. If there's one thing to say to those who are coming up pre-college, going into the, the college, into a life of music, you're always prepared. That's what I've told my students. If they get called, they can play their piece, their recent repertoire on a moment's notice. Of everything I've noticed in music, that is one of the biggest things is always being ready. Another thing is never stake your life on having a solo career because I have seen people get depressed and give it up over that. Now, I never insist anyone be a professional musician. I want every student to make their own choice. It's really important. I don't want them saying, I think they should do this or that. I say, you enter competitions, see how you come out. You make the decision. I do not choose their college. If they want my advice, I will give them options. I'll help them choose their colleges. When, when students are auditioning for college, so this would be pre-college, going into college, I write to the teachers that they that I have chosen or suggested for the college. If it's, But if they have another idea and want to try for someone else, that's fine. There's flexibility. There needs to be flexibility. You don't want people hating you for the rest of your life. You want, and you want them to be happy. You want them to have a wonderful experience with college and their life afterwards. And, and another thing, you know, this is a little bit into that, but if you have a student that's studying with you and they, they want to switch teachers, don't be upset. I tell my students, I mean, if, if they said, you know, maybe I think I want to do this. I had one student decide he wanted to go up to Boston. He was from, from uh, Johns Creek, Georgia. He wanted to go to Boston. I said, fine, that's wonderful. And if students want to change teachers, I say, I'll make the, I'll make the connection for you. So going to college, it's really important for their present teacher to make the connection with the college teacher. I have found that to be invaluable. And, and to know your students so well that you know they're going to play well. They're not going to embarrass you. I know for sure. My students will not embarrass me. That's very important, <laughs> too. This is our very last question, and perhaps you've already started answering it, but I'll ask it anyways. What advice would you give to young pre-collegiate musicians about a life with music? They have to be ready for a lot of experiences that they may not always enjoy. But I have not had honestly, I've not had anyone have a bad time. There's been some that they got, they, they went into music and then they decided to be a lawyer or they decided to be a doctor. It's possible. It's possible. I would say that they need to, of course, practice and be ready. Being ready is so important. They need to be respectful of the teachers they're going to. They need to listen to the ones when they go to college, they need to listen to their teachers. They need to heed advice. And then when it comes down to it, they need to make the right choices for themselves. Choice is being wise and making choices is, is a key thing for anybody, musician or not, in life. Making a wise choice, not a hurried choice. 
not just something convenient. Make a choice that fits with your values. Choices, and think about your choices. Don't make spontaneous choices. I've told students, think ahead of time what you would do if you got in a certain situation that made you uncomfortable. Be able to leave. I've talked to girls about this. If they got in a situation that was not a good situation with a real famous person or a famous teacher, I know this was not a part of the questions, but this is important to talk about. I do talk to my girl. If you anything, any situation you get get in, prepare ahead of time for like what you would do and be willing to walk out, even if a person was famous. If you're not comfortable with it. Just say, I'm not comfortable, and leave. So you have to be ready. Being ready and being knowing your instrument in every respect. Like if you have an orchestra audition, really practicing hard. Go to bed early the night before. Listen to videos of famous concert masters talking about orchestral auditions, things like, things like that. Being ready, making wise choices. Well, Sonia, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this conversation. I have certainly learned a lot and been encouraged listening to you. So I'm sure our listeners will be as well. I wish you happy teaching and happy students. <laughs>